Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. City News. Hello, good evening. Welcome to Eyewitness News coming to you live from our studios at number 11, Dr. Martin Loop in Adabraka in Accra. My name is Salom Adunu. Tonight I'm here with Akosia Ochre. Coming up over the next 90 minutes. Carefully consider the report and recommendations of the ECOWAS Committee of Chiefs of Defense Staff. Direct the Committee of the Chief of Defense Staff to activate the ECOWAS standby force with all its elements immediately. Order the deployment of the ECOWAS standby force to restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger. ECOWAS decides on military intervention in Niger following the ousting of democratically elected president uh, Mohamed Bazoum. Still on eyewitness news office of special prosecutor finds more money in Sicilia Dapes Abilimpe House as court documents review. We will share more from the court processes with you very soon. And later on, anti-gay bill leaders in Ghana speak on the World Bank sanctions on Uganda over a similar uh, law they passed for themselves. Stay with 97.3 CTFM for more on this and other stories on Eyewitness News and in business. International Monetary Fund justifies 60 billion cities loss incurred by Bank of Ghana. There is more in business in the next 50 minutes. Eyewitness News is live across the country on all our affiliates and around the globe at citynewsroom.com. Your comments are welcome via our WhatsApp line 0549-986-996. You can follow me on Twitter at Selom Adunu. The hashtag, as always, is City Newsroom. Take our first story and Akusia, you know, is ready with that. The Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, has ordered its standby force to restore constitutional order in Niger Republic. The president of ECOWAS, Omar Aliou Toure, made a declaration while de- uh, reading the resolution of ECOWAS on the Niger coup at the ECOWAS Extraordinary Meeting in Abuja uh, on Thursday. It also called on the African Union AU partners, uh, partner countries and institutions to support the resolution taken by the sub-regional body. ECOWAS said all efforts made to dialogue with Niger Republic military junta have been defiantly rejected by coup leaders as they condemn the continuous detention of President Mohamed Bazoum and his family members. The authority, having considered the memorandum presented by the President of the ECOWAS Commission on the current situation in the Republic of Niger, as well as ECOWAS engagement since the last extraordinary summit, and having considered the reports of the envoys of Niger and various other places, carefully considered the report and recommendations of the ECOWAS Committee of Chiefs of Defense Staff, Extensively development in Niger since the last extraordinary summit held on 30th July 2023. Noted that all diplomatic efforts made by ECOWAS in resolving the crisis have been defiantly repelled by the military leadership of the Republic of Niger. 
taking note of the expiration of the one-week ultimatum given for the restoration of constitutional order in the Republic of Niger, decide as follows. A, reiterates its strong condemnation of the attempted coup d'etat and the continued illegal detention of President Mohamed Bazoum, his family, and members of his government. B, further condemns being detained and hold the CNSP fully and solely responsible for the safety, security, and physical in integrity of President Bazoum, members of his family, and government. C. Uphold all measures and principles agreed upon on Niger on 20. Underscore the determination of the ECOWAS authority to keep all options on the table for the peaceful resolution of the crisis. Enforce all measures, in particular border closures and strict travel bans and assets freeze persons or groups of individuals whose actions hinder all peaceful efforts aimed at ensuring the smooth and complete restoration of constitutional order. One member states who action directly or indirectly hindered the peaceful resolution of the crisis in Niger about the consequences for their action before the community. Call on the African Union to endorse all the decisions taken by the ECOWAS authority on the situation in Niger. Further call on all partner countries and institutions, including the United Nations, to support ECOWAS in its effort to ensure a quick restoration of constitutional order in conformity with its normative instruments. Direct the President of the Commission to monitor the implementation of the sanctions. Direct the Committee of the Chief of Defense Staff to activate the ECOWAS standby force with all its elements immediately. Order the deployment of the ECOWAS standby force to restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger. Underscore its continued commitment to the restoration of constitutional order through peaceful means express appreciation to His Excellency General Abdusalami Abubakar, His Eminence Muhammadu Saad Abubakar, the Sultan of Sokoto, Ambassador Baba Kingibe for the special envoy missions undertaken in Niger, Libya, and Algeria on behalf of the Chair of Authority. Express gratitude to His Excellency Bola Ahmed Tinubu, President of the Federal Republic of Nigeria, and Chair of the ECOWAS Authority for convening the extraordinary summit and for the manner in which he has been conducting the affair, the affair of the community as Chair of Authority. Donald Abuja, this 10th day of August 2023. I thank you. That was President of ECOWAS, Omar Liu Ture. Well, so um, interestingly, I mean, the, the dice is being cast, the ECOWAS uh, a regional body is is decided that military intervention now is 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 almost inevitable, and so that is the direction the body wants to take. Let's speak to uh, Colonel Festus Abuaji, security analyst, knows so much about the space and and what implications uh, the uh, the decision of ECOWAS could have 
for the sub-region generally. Uh, good evening, Colonel. Welcome to Eyewitnessings. Of course, we spoke a couple of days ago, and you were you 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 asked the ECOWAS to exercise a bit of restraint, and you even said that the, the, the Bolatinubu's pronouncement was was quite in haste. Now that the regional body appears to have made its made up its mind that military intervention is uh, the way to go. What 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 are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, to start with. Well, thanks for having me. I think this statement that we heard is different in some respects from the ultimatum that was given uh, during the first uh, meeting of the authority. In a way, they're now saying that ECOWAS cannot um, launch the intervention by just collecting and assembling and projecting contributions from its member states. And that is got to be within the framework of the ECOWAS standby force. So one would wish to ask, what is the ECOWAS standby force? Now, for West Africa, when we came out of the conflicts in the Mano River region, we thought that we had been ill-prepared in early 1990 for the kind of scenario that unfolded in Liberia and Sierra Leone. Although the Charter of 1975, that is the ECOWAS Charter, had provided for an allied armed forces of the community, AAFC, so the concept is that currently the Equa Standby Force is a collection of contributions from its member states, 15 of them, less the four, that is Niger, Burkina, Mali, and Guinea, so 11. These troops and other assets are on standby in their respective countries of origin. So the Ghana Armed Forces that you and I know about, in principle, contributes to the ECOWAS standby force. There is a thematic structure for the ECOWAS standby force. First of all, we have the Vanguard, consisting of two elements, 1,500 Nigerians as the Eastern Vanguard, and then the Western Gambia. Vanguard provided by Senegal, also 1,500. Then we have the main force that I stand to be correct, or I, I can't remember very well, but let's say 3,500. So the entire Equestrian by force on paper is about 6,500. It consists of land forces, it consists of air forces, and then it consists of naval and other combat support, mission support assets. Now, what should follow after this decision is that it's an assumption that the 6,500 will not be sufficient for the task assigned by the, the, the leadership of ECOWAS. It definitely has to be more. Otherwise, we run the risk of getting bogged down as we did in Liberia where we started with a smaller force of about 2,600. We faced opposition, 
And then we started augmenting until we got to about 13,500 in 1997-98. So the staff of the ECOWAS standby force, there is a chief of staff. But the chief of staff is not going to be the force commander. So ECOWAS now, working through the president of the ECOWAS commission, needs to now identify and working with the ECOWAS uh, Chiefs of Defense Staff Committee we need to identify a force commander, a deputy force commander, and so on. They need to now put together a campaign structure or a force structure so that when Gambia brings a platoon, Sierra Leone brings a company, these elements cannot operate independently. You need now to group them together. And invariably, they're going to be now attached or placed under command of a bigger unit, let's say a battalion. So we cannot, at this stage, determine how soon this, um, what do you call it, this invasion, as I call it, will take place. There has to be a lot of calculations around the military table. And it is only when the military says they are ready, that is the ECOWAS standby force, and they have presented their campaign plan to the appropriate authority, that they are appropriate authority will then give them the go-ahead to launch the invasion. Uh, I don't think it's still going to happen. But be that as it may, this is the decision that we have to live with. Before then, I think ECOWAS probably has not been that candid with us. But the best course that ECOWAS has is a diplomatic uh, engagement. And it doesn't mean that if you send one delegation or another and they don't succeed, that is the end of it. Any of the conflicts that we've had in West Africa, including even the one in Cote d'Ivoire in 2011, there were several series of diplomatic engagements, not only by the ECOWAS, but also by the AU and by other member states uh, within the African continent. So this is where we are. The budget for this campaign has not been worked out. It's going to cost money. The logistical support is going to be huge. Augmenting what I call the expeditionary capabilities, basically, that if Ghanaian troops are going to operate out of Ghana, and we know that they cannot go through Burkina Faso, and they cannot go through Togo, or they have to go through Togo into Benin, they need additional capabilities, either by sea or by air, and then road transportation and so on. And we don't have these insufficient numbers uh, in West Africa. And that is what the staff of the ECOWAS standby force will be doing. Let's also remember that in our respective countries, and I keep emphasizing this, soldiers don't sit in barracks not doing anything. There are many things they do that we don't see. In our own country, they are involved in many, many other operations in the northern parts of this uh, country to try and quell the Boku conflict and so on. There are some flying the Ghana flag in international peacekeeping operations at the UN uh, auspices and so on. There are some on training. There are some at the staff colleges and other schools of training and so on. Then there are those who are doing purely administrative work, which is also requisite. 
for keeping the forces, you know, on an even key. There are those on leave, and there will be a few who are sick, you know. So composing this force is not also a very simple matter. And when you've done that, you need to concentrate them. We call it marina. So you need to establish esprit de corps. So it takes any battalion in Ghana. It's not up to wartime strength. Even our peacekeeping strengths may be questionable. So you need to now augment those units. And when you bring new elements to be members of a unit, they need to get to know one another. That's what we call uh, building the esprit de corps. The commander needs to know the men and women he or she is going to you know, command and establish good relationships, uh, impress his or her personalities upon those men and women placed under them and so on. It's not easy. Uh, also, and then let me say that I don't think the military option, even if it takes place, will bring me back to the scenarios that I shared uh, a few days ago. And unless ECOWAS, with some magic, manages to score a quick victory, all the other options will entail a lot of risk that I don't think ECOWAS and the international community might be prepared, you know, to accommodate at this stage. I see. Quite a very detailed analysis of the situation. So, I mean, from all you have said, from putting together the standby force, marrying up, getting to know themselves, deployment, etc., then it's, it's almost an impossibility. It's not going to happen anytime soon. So between now and then, what should be happening? Uh, I, I'm not sure if diplomacy has entirely failed, but does this announcement put a strain on diplomatic efforts to, to get the junta to give way for the restoration of democracy in, in Niger? Well, if I, I hear the statement well, and... Uh, I've quickly gone to the internet, and I think they said the ECOWAS standby force has been ordered to deploy to restore, um, is it democracy in Niger? That itself is a clear shift in the earlier position of ECOWAS, which had all along emphasized the reinstatement of Batum. So restoring democracy or governance is not the same as restoring an individual uh, to his or her office. So there is a bit of a shift there. Now, military governments do not restore governments. That is not, that's not the objective. It's not a military objective. Their business, whether it be to go into Niger and destroy the CNSP or neutralize them, and re- secure the release, it will then up to ECOWAS diplomats to go and reinstate Bazo. This is not a military task. Even if we try to do it in uh, uh, Liberia, those who are conversant with the history of the conflict in Liberia will know that from 1990 to 1994, especially Nigeria thought that we could decide the outcome of Taylor's invasion on the battlefield. It didn't work. So from 1995, we changed strategy, and then we tried to now find an exit strategy which focused on elections. You see what I mean? So the ECOWAS option at this stage, strategically, 
will be what I said on City um, with Avle yesterday, to dial back and then to begin to accommodate a kind of transition. Uh, we cannot spell out the, the length of the transition, whether it should be one month or two months or six months. It must be a transitional period. And under the circumstance, it must be a transitional period of a kind of military-civilian administration. Because, look, in Guinea or even Mali, the military have a stake in the outcome in Niger. First of all, personally speaking for themselves. You know, they need to be sure that their careers will be intact, their safety will be intact. So is Bazoum's safety and Bazoum's uh, political future and so on. So to guarantee that, you form this kind of transitional period. And whatever the grievances are, if it needs constitutional reforms, you do the constitutional reforms. If it's electoral reforms, you do the electoral reforms. And the exit strategy will then revolve ultimately around new elections. And then there is a face-saving exit by this general, Brigadier General Abdurrahmani Siani and his men, especially the military governors in the eight regions, as well as the new cabinet that he has put in place. And then there is also a safe exit for Bazoum and his previous government. Now, diplomacy doesn't mean that. You don't make concessions. So if Ecuador wants to fight its way into Niger and restore democracy, yes, they can go ahead with it. My understanding is that that will be a very dangerous precedent. It means that any time there is misgovernance in West Africa, not only by the military, by civilian governments, we should be ready to launch an invasion into those countries to restore democracy and governance. Can you do that in Wataris, uh, Cote d'Ivoire? Can you do that in Nyasimbe's Togo? Can you do that in Makisal, Senegal? And definitely can you do that in Tinubu's Nigeria? So we should not go away with the impression that when a country is small or is perceived to be weak, we can then, you know, willy-nilly use force. Indeed, I'm beginning to ask whether this use of force to restore democracy is internationally acceptable under international law. Can we define the situation in, in Niger as an aggression under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, which is the only proviso for the use of force? Because a member state of the UN has been aggressed. There is no external aggression. There is no, um, if you like, the insurgents have not gained the upper hand and threatening the government of Niger, for which you now need to deploy a force to go and defeat the insurgency, something that since 2011 we have stood idly by. And we have only thought of layering regional security by creating the so-called Africa uh, Accra Initiative, you see what I mean, on top of the G5 Sahel, on top of the MNJTF, when all along the fire has been burning and getting closer and closer to the so-called uh, northern borders of the 
Guinea Coast countries. So the whole ECOWAS strategy, in terms of democratic stability, democratic consolidation, in terms of regional security, for me, I think has been messed up. I see. And after Niger, we need to come back and do a serious review of how we're going to ensure that there is democratic stability uh, within our respective regions. Otherwise, Niger, I keep saying, will not be the last one. We may mm. finish with Niger, but there will be more such situations as in Guinea, as in Mali, as in Burkina Faso, as in Niger. Mm. And only a few weeks ago, there was a bit of tension in Sierra Leone. There had also been tensions in Senegal, which is the only country in West Africa that has not endured a coup. But they came very close. And only intelligence agencies, especially the powerful ones, would know how close Senegal came to a coup. Mm. So the, the, the whole argument that I have is that the root causes of coups are what we must seek to deal with or address. It is not that we don't like coups. And I think here we need to remind ourselves that hopes and wishes are not strategies. To sit there and wish that there is no coup and hope that there is no coup is not a strategy. The best strategy is to find out what causes coups and then to put in place mechanisms and interventions to prevent the coups from happening in the first place. And so far, we have not done that. We have only said that we don't like the uniform, and therefore anybody in uniform who comes to the scene uh, will not be countenanced. And yet, when our civilian administrations, and these few ministers have mentioned Wataras, Cote d'Ivoire, have mentioned Nyasimbe's Togo, I've mentioned Makisal's, uh, what do you call it, Sedigar. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Of course, Burkina Faso, remember 2014, the same scenario around Kampuari wanting to retain power by re-engineering constitutional reforms and continuing. That is the crux of the matter. Mm-hmm. Plus, the elections that we manipulate, so the elections don't express the will of the people. I see, but but, but these are these are long term. These are long term, or, or, or I mean, quite not not difficult, but uh, very tedious things that we have to do, which may take time and which may entail no, growing our democratic or governance work. institutions. You know, so, so, so and educating the the, the the electorate, so 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 they know a lot of this. But I, I'll come back to you to help me deal with you know the the the, the support for the coup locally, etc., and yeah. and what the possible. Uh, assistance of the Wagner Group could be because we are aware that the Nigerian authorities, the Janta, have been making contacts with the Wagner Group uh, in neighboring Mali for some assistance. But let me speak to uh, the Honorable Mahama Yarga, who is a member of the ECOWAS Parliament and, and member of Parliament for uh, Boku Central in, in Ghana. Hello, good, good evening, sir. Welcome to Eyewitness News. The, the ECOWAS ha, has spoken and they are in favor of military intervention, as we've said before, but now they are readying the standby force to to undertake the the the, the task or to to do the deployment or for deployment. But my, my conversations with the Colonel, as you may have heard, suggest that it's it's it may be long term or it may take a while putting the force together, doing what we call marrying up, getting the troops to know themselves, you know, and the eventual deployment. 
may may take a long time that it may not even happen at all. What, what, what's your thoughts really on this? Yeah, good evening to you and then your listeners. And thank you for the opportunity to be heard on this matter. I believe you are familiar with the statement that he who desires peace should prepare for war. We all want diplomacy. We believe that ultimately the issue should be resolved diplomatically. But for diplomacy to be effective, the military option has to remain on the table. And those that ECOWAS will be engaged in Niger must understand that ECOWAS has the capacity to enforce its will. If ECOWAS does not demonstrate that capacity to enforce its will, the diplomatic option will not be an effective option. And so I'm not surprised that ECOWAS is sharpening its knife, which is the standby force, to demonstrate to the Nigerian junta that it has the capacity to enforce its will, and therefore it should sit and talk. So I believe that ultimately it is sitting and talking and dialoguing that will resolve this issue. But that will not succeed unless the Nigerian military junta fill the capacity of ECOWAS. So if you desire peace, you have to prepare for war. I, I see. Quite, quite interesting. And, and yes, I, and, I, and I get your point. But how about the thought that, you know, once you start, you, you cannot really stop. So this is Niger today. Tomorrow, it, it could be Guinea. It could be another country. It could be Ghana because we, we've had that history. It could even be Nigeria. If ECOWAS starts this, are they in a position to keep up the momentum? Let's say something happens in Nigeria. Somebody takes up arm and then and then and then uh, ousts the democratically elected president. Are we able as ECOWAS to do a similar thing in that country so that it may not appear to the rest of the world as being discriminatory? I think it didn't start today. It started with um, uh, the Gambia. And ECOWAS threatened and sent troops. Guy Jameh left. So we are being tested again because if we don't apply the same principle that we applied in the Gambia, then ECOWAS will become a laughing stock. And so it has already started. And this is the second test case. This is a bit more complicated because, as you have heard, the military junta is totally refusing to engage. They are refusing to accommodate any dialogue. And that is why maybe ECOWAS is forced to accelerate. In other cases, and I was particularly close to the efforts in Mali, the new Malian junta were actually willing to engage. I mean, they met ECOWAS missions, they talked, they agreed on timelines, even though they did not respect the timelines, but at least they sat and talked and agreed to the timelines, knowing very well that they will not, you know, uh, live by 
commitments that they have made. And any time that the timelines approach, they will sit and talk and then, you know, request for an extension and find a reason why the extension must be given. So at least there was accommodation for them to engage. But in this instance, the janitor is totally refusing to listen to eminent persons sent by ECOWAS to go and engage them. And so ECOWAS must position itself to compel them to come to the diplomatic you know, table. If they don't come to the negotiating table, how are you going to engage them to negotiate a diplomatic solution? So they leave ECOWAS with no option but to prepare for military action. And that is what ECOWAS is doing. I see, but is ECOWAS ready for the, the, the consequences of a possible military intervention as they are preparing to, to deploy the standby force? I mean, refugees, etc. In, in a, a rather battered, economically battered sub-region, are we ready to, uh, to, to, to face the, the economic consequences that will arise as, as, as a lot of refugees will now be uh, trooping to you know, the, the neighboring countries? Are, are we able to stand that? Well, I believe that ECOWAS asked its chiefs of army staff to meet and present them with the various options, scenarios, and proposals. I'm not a military expert, and so I don't know what scenarios, what options were presented to them. We don't even know exactly in what form the military action will be. So we haven't even gotten to the point where we can see definitely that the consequences will be, you know, a spillover of refugees across the sub-region and etc. So I think that it is too early to be discussing those uh, issues. But I also will want to state that as a sub-region, we need to have a clear position in terms of what values are most important to us? Is democracy an important value? The rule of law an important value? Constitutional governance an important value? If these are so important, then we must all be ready to pay the price for making sure that we uphold these values. No price should be too dear for upholding these values. If we want to go back a sub-region that has all the various countries being ruled by military men, then we should be accommodating one military regime after the other in the sub-region. Mm. And then that will be the end of democracy. So it is what is at stake relative to the price that we need to pay. I agree with uh, Festus when he talks about the underlying issues, which is the quality of governance under democratic government. If democratic governments don't step up and ensure that the wider population enjoys the dividends of democracy, then the fragility of democracy will be exposed and we will see military governments coming up and we will see popular support for such military governments mm. because the wider population will really not appreciate the value of democracy because they are not seeing its dividends. And so I have been very critical of ECOWAS. Uh, I'm, a, I'm the rapporteur of the Political Affairs Committee of the ECOWAS Parliament. I've been very critical of the fact that ECOWAS tends to focus on elections and transition 
and hardly working on what happens in between elections and transitions. So if you are insisting that there must be democracy, there must be free and fair elections, and etc., when people get elected, you must also insist that the quality of governance must be good, and you must devise tools for compelling countries not to be corrupt, to make sure that the resources of the people are fairly distributed, and that they are properly deployed, and that there's good governance, and there's inclusiveness of all the populations, and etc. These countries that we see being ruled by the military junta, I have traveled in all these countries, and there are large ungoverned spaces in these countries. There are large swaths of these countries that do not enjoy anything from the state. And so, you know, all sorts of forces fill the state and it cause instability in those countries. And ECOWAS hasn't done much. Mm. How do it uh, country? And yet, when the military intervenes, then ECOWAS moves in and tries to use force. And that's why you see the populations filling the stadia and marching in the streets in support of their soldiers against, even though they say France, but also the message is partly to ECOWAS. And I have friends there, and they call and say, but you people, when we're here struggling and suffering, where were you? ECOWAS, you did nothing. And today you're telling us that we shouldn't support the military junta. So ECOWAS must be felt by the people in between elections by way of compelling the government to be honest, to be accountable, to refrain from corrupt practices, not to siphon public funds and send them abroad, to be equitable, to be inclusive, and etc. If you don't do this, you lose the moral authority. In instances like this, you want to step in and use force. Very Nevertheless, well. I think that we should not also tolerate the military because in all these countries, I haven't seen how the military have fared better than their democratic predecessors that they removed in dealing with the crisis mm. in this country. Very well. I'm so grateful. Um, I'm Ayariga, Honorable uh, Member of Parliament for Boku Central and then the Member of the ECOWAS Parliament. Thanks so much for uh, speaking to us on this matter. Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. We, we lost Festus Abuajikano on the line. We will see if we can raise him in, and then put those other questions to him. Thanks so much, uh, Honorable Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. A few of your messages that have come through. Alan Enchantan, it's a very brilliant analysis there by Colonel Festus Abuaji. It's always very informative. Uh, listening to him, I want to believe that no Ghanaian soldier will be sent to Niger. I uh, will take a short break, return, and then deal with the other issues we have on the table, including Cecilia Dapes' um, latest uh, matter. Don't go away. Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3, Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973, and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973 with the hashtag Eyewitness News. You all come back. Now, the unfolding case involving the former sanitation minister and water resources, uh, Cecilia Dapa, has taken an even more dramatic turn in the wake of the startling revelation of stolen funds by her domestic staff. The Office of the Special Prosecutor embarked on a comprehensive search of the minister's residences, prompted by the staggering amounts that were reported stolen. Now, startling details have emerged from the OSP, disclosing that a substantial sum 
sum of 590,000 US dollars in cash was unearthed during the search conducted at the Abilimpe residence of the former sanitation minister. Concurrently, an outstanding amount of 2,730,000 Ghana cities in cash was also discovered at the same address. Officials from the OSP took immediate action, seizing these substantial cash sums as crucial evidence to support the ongoing investigation. All the OSP has subsequently frozen the accounts of the former minister's city and dollar accounts pending further investigations. And Accra High Court has set Thursday, August 17, to rule on the confirmation or otherwise of the freezing of Cecilia Dapa's various accounts. All right, so um, th- th- let's do a quick interview on this. Let's speak to Vitus Azim, who is an anti-corruption crusader, uh, on, on what his views are now that we have something official on the matter. And the document you're referring to are court processes uh, filed by uh, the uh, Office of the Special Prosecutor in respect of the confirmation of order of freezing of suspected tainted property and confirmation of seizure of suspected tainted property uh, presumably belonging to uh, the beleaguered former minister, Cecilia Dapa. Hello, good evening, uh, Vitus. Welcome to Eyewitness News. Um, now we know that the special prosecutor, Office of the Special Prosecutor, discovered uh, about 590,000 US dollars in that house in Abedengpe and 2.730 uh, million Ghana cities in that house. And so they have taken steps to seize it and they've frozen some accounts as well. Is this a way to go? Positive news for you as an anti-corruption crusader? Well, I have just seen a, a letter from the Office of Special Prosecutor denying some of the information that is out there. Like the amounts of the values of the money in the bank accounts. But whatever the case, I think the Special Prosecutor is doing a good job. This is what we've been looking up to him for, for the past, uh, let's say, from, since 2018. We expect the Office of Prosecutors to be proactive and go after people, no matter who they are, when there are credible allegations of corruption against them. So I think it's a welcome development, and you should be commended for that. Talking about being proactive, is it your expectation that every now and then the special prosecutor does some of these swoops in, in, in to, I mean, people's houses, or, I mean, houses of uh, public officers who uh, may, may, may have been reasonably suspected of, of having some tainted property or money in their possession? Well, we're in a democracy, and unless somebody alleges, accuses you or petition the office of special prosecutor, it will be difficult for him to just come to your house and say, I want to check whether you have money in your house or not. So there must be some kind of uh, evidence or accusation that says that you are probably holding money in your house. And you see, that's why we have the, office, the Financial Intelligence Center. The bank is supposed to inform the FIC of any suspicious movements of, of huge sums of cash. And so if all the government state institutions, relevant state institutions are working together, it should be possible to do that. But otherwise, I don't think the special prosecutor alone can just get up and say that I suspect you, say, Lome, and then I'll come to, 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 to search your house. Uh, there will be issues about tampering uh, with somebody's human rights and all that. So I don't think that will happen. But then proactive in the sense that 
when there are credible allegations of corruption or credible allegations of suspicious movement of funds or hoarding of funds, then he should have the, the he should be able to go and, and verify those things. For example, these assets that are discovered, he probably needs to go to the office of uh, the, the Commission on Human Rights to demand the asset declaration of the, the, the former minister to verify whether these assets were already in existence when she became a minister or not. That's what I mean by being proactive. I, I see. Uh, the, the the Attorney General um, is also uh, um, written his opinion on the matter, and he has uh, subsequently directed the CID of the police service to investigate the true ownership and sources of the amounts reportedly stolen from the residents of uh, the, the the deputy the former minister in 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 questing. Um, it, it's it, it, a lot has been said about the ownership of the money belonging to the brother, the mother, etc. I mean, I don't know what you think about this generally about the directive to the CID and what your general thoughts are about the true ownership of that money, given the inconsistent information we, we've had in the past. I think that it's very unfortunate that the Attorney General is appears to be interfering with the investigations and the work of the Office of Special Prosecutor. It's very unfortunate because the police, the matter was reported to the police, the police investigated and took the matter to court. All the relevant information was given to the court as to the ownership of those monies. So when the Attorney General now takes over and says the police go back and do their work, I think just a, just a deliberate attempt to temper, to, to, to temper, to think, to tinker with the investigation, and, and that's very unfortunate for two city institutions to be doing conflicting work. I think the Attorney General needs to step aside on this and avoid getting involved in it and allow the other responsible to go on with his work. I see. Um, thank you very much, uh, the, uh, Mr. Vitus Azim, uh, for speaking to us on, on, on this. We, we, we will wait with bated breath to see what happens in court on the 17th of August as the uh, Office of the Special Prosecutor goes to court uh, to confirm uh, uh, the, the freezing order of the former Minister of State. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. Now, proponents of the promotion of proper sexual human and Ghanaian Family Values Bill, um, I mean, promotion of proper sexual human rights and Ghanaian Family Values Bill, also known as the Anti-LGBT Bill, uh, say they are unperturbed by the World Bank sanction of Uganda for enacting a similar act or law. The World Bank has announced that the bank will provide no new public financing to Uganda because, uh, the, because of Uganda's Anti-Homosexuality Act uh, because that act fundamentally contradicts uh, the World Bank's values. The promotion of proper sexual human sexual rights uh, bill is in the consideration stage in Ghana's parliament and expected to be passed by the House. Uh, following the sanctions to Uganda, the member of parliament for the whole West uh, constituency, one of the proponents of the bill, um, Emmanuel Kwesi Bedra, uh, is of the view uh, that nothing, I mean, they are determined to, to pass the legislation, at least from uh, Ghana's side of things. Let's speak to Roxanne Dafiamako, uh, Roxanne Nelson Dafiamako, who is one of uh, those proponents of that bill, uh, MP for South Dai. He joins us on the line. Hello, good evening, um, um, Honorable Roxanne Nelson uh, Dafiamako. The, 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 the news from Uganda obviously is concerning for a lot of people in Ghana and U.S. should should be, you for you especially as a member of parliament, given Ghana's economic position right now, Ghana passes this bill, 
now inflows from the World Bank seizes. That would put a country in a very precarious situation, wouldn't it? Salam. Um, good evening. Good evening to your listeners and uh, viewers if we are on TV. Uh, Salam, their name is Dafamakpo. 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 I, I, I appreciate that. Dafamakpo. <laughs> Not Dafamakpo, as I say, but the real name is Dafamakpo. <laughs> you you eat too close, so you should be able to do that. <laughs> I concede. Yeah. Now, Salam, um, it's, um, it's a matter that um, should bother the entire of Africa. It's a matter that should bother the entire world. Um, Ghana, Uganda, as it were, is not the is not the first country on earth to have promulgated an anti-LGBT law. Hungary is there. Uh, there are some very serious anti-LGBT laws in Georgia, and and I hear Poland, and of course Russia, and of course China. So why is the World Bank not threatening these countries with? Um, with withdrawing um, assistance, as it were, to, to these nations if they care to request one from the World Bank. Except because it's Africa, and then two, um, it's also being used as an intimidation tactic to cower um, Uganda and, of course, Ghana into submission. But we are resolved, as it were, to answer your question, we are resolved as a nation, uh, to pass this legislation into law, we a sovereign country. We may have our economic challenges, but if the World Bank says they won't give us money, we will be able to to do other things and survive as a people. We will not sell our birthright for a pitan. But the countries you mentioned, I mean, Poland, China, Russia, etc., these are countries with some economic might, and they don't really... Uh, need a World Bank as Ghana and Africa uh, would need them. So if you, if you go to someone begging, you should be ready to play by the person's rules, shouldn't you? So so if the World Bank says that it is part of their standards, as it were, for us to eat human flesh, we will say that because it's a World Bank standard, we should be, be compelled to eat human flesh, even though it, it, it's inhuman, it's, it's, it's uncultural to us. We will not be compelled by economic circumstances to accept what is what is uncultural, what is what is unacceptable to our cultural and, and, and social values in Africa. Africa has 54 countries or nations as part of the World Bank Group. I think as as I think as a continent, it is time that we get together and begin to champion a common cause. If we do that. Then, then parasitical institutions like the World Bank or the IMF or such other institutions cannot call our bluff that if we are minded to pass legislation that is suitable for our circumstances, we should be punished for it. Why are they not withdrawing, withdrawing support to, 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 to Saudi Arabia or to such other very serious Muslim-dominated countries? Why? <laughs> I see. Well, we'll see, we'll see how um, things unfold. So, I mean, just for some updates on the bill, we are at the yeah. consideration stage. Parliament is on yeah. recess. Uh, yeah. What happens next? When we come back from recess, what, what, what happens yeah. next? Well, when we come back from recess, it will be, it will be considered with this party with some alacrity. Uh, uh, you recall that um, in the, during the truce of uh, going on recess, a lot of legislations that were at very various stages of 
being passed into into law it had to be jostling for attention and so uh, we considered particularly those that are not very long in terms of um, the the number of provisions so the 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 criminal amendment act for instance had been passed the one the one that that prescribes the the death penalty the one dealing with the witches come um and I believe some other legislation as the UNESCO the UNESCO bill uh, brought by Minister of Education, uh, the Attorney General's own bill. So those ones that are not heavy in terms of content, we found time to deal with them to take them off the other paper. So that when we return in October, the heavier ones like the interstate succession uh, bill as well as our own bill that is the subject of this discussion. Will be will be given focus. I see. So the assurance is that by end of this year, we will have this bill passed into law and secure presidential accent. Very well. Thank you so much, uh, the Honourable Roxin Nelson Dafamakbo, Member of Parliament for South Dai and a proponent of the uh, anti-LGBT bill currently in Parliament. Eyewitness News on ninety-seven point three City FM. We'll take a short break, return, and do city business. Don't go away. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Get the details. Every significant financial transaction, every market movement, and all the policies that affect your business. City Business News. Be informed. Time now for City Business News and Eyewitness News, powered by citybusinessnews.com. My name is Akosi Hauchi. Let's settle for the details. Now, the International Monetary Fund, IMF, has backed the Bank of Ghana's $60 billion loss incurred in 2022. The fund says the impairment, which was brought on by the government's domestic debt exchange, was necessary to restore macroeconomic stability and also public sustainability. There's more news desk report. The Bank of Ghana incurred the loss largely as a result of the government's domestic debt program after its marketable and non-marketable holdings of government of Ghana instruments, including long-term stocks, a COVID-19 bond, and overdraft were subjected to a 50% haircut. The central bank has said it had to take the hit to salvage the economy, but this explanation has not satisfied industry players who blame the Bank of Ghana for fiscal irresponsibility and unsound practices, a claim the bank has vehemently refuted. The latest to jump to the defense of the Bank of Ghana is the IMF, which is the financial agency providing Ghana with a 3 billion US dollars bailout, which has led to the restructuring to bring the country's debt to sustainable levels. The IMF has said that the BOG's participation in the DDE was to share some of the burden the restructuring places on government debt holders, along with banks, other financial institutions, pension funds, and individuals. In a statement, the IMF further added that, quote, the loss the BOG incurred in the process has contributed to reducing its net equity to a negative value. Importantly, however, this does not prevent the BOG from fulfilling its policy mandates and ensuring inflation gradually returns towards its 8% target, unquote. In fact, the IMF anticipates that the central bank income will be adequate to cover the costs associated with monetary policy. The BOG's net equity is expected to improve significantly over time and eventually return to positive territory, the IMF concluded. 
That was a news desk report filed by City Business News' Ni Lati Lati. Let's still stay on this matter because economist and dean of the University of Cape Coast Business School, Professor John Gachi, is raising concerns or questions about the Bank of Ghana's continuous attribution of its losses to the domestic debt exchange. It believes that this explanation is insufficient and should undergo scrutiny. The Bank of Ghana has countered allegations of insolvency and bankruptcy by asserting that it remains fiscally sound despite the impairment. The bank emphasizes that this is a non-commercial entity and its financial results do not impact on its operational capabilities. But Professor John Gachi insists that the argument of the central bank is untenable. BOG is telling us that the only time that the finance ministry was able to brief parliament about all dealings was when they were briefing parliament on the DDEP and the IMF program. And that shows that uh, what they did in 2019, what they did in 2017, what they did in 2021, what they did in 2022 was not as required by the law. They should go to parliament for parliament to give them uh, approval. They didn't do that. For you to lose 15 billion in one year and you are both to say that it doesn't affect your your mandate, then I don't know what financial statement is doing. If you have a, a deeper loss of 50 billion and at the same time have a 55 billion negative equity, that speaks volume. For them to come and say that oh uh, we are not we are not commercial bank, say they are commercial, they say they are they are policy potent, but last year the potency has resulted into a moving exchange rate from 60 billion to about 11.5. The potency has resulted in moving inflation for nearly a single digit to 43%. The potency of their policies have brought about interest rates about 14.5%, now uh, 30% of policy rate, and the lending rate becomes about this. So please, what the, uh, the Bank of Ghana should be doing is to give a roadmap to the stakeholders. But for the Bank of Ghana to look at the faces of Ghanaians and tell that we are not we are no commercial bank, therefore when we make losses, it's not a big deal. Who told you that? Economist and Dean of the University of Cape Coast Business School, Professor John Gachi. Now, still on this, the Bank of Ghana has been asked to be more transparent for the interest of Ghana's financial sector following concerns raised over its huge impairment. Economist Dr. Patrick Isumi tells City Business News that the central bank ought to be more open about activities that have led to the significant impairment. It would be helpful to explain a lot of show a little bit more transparency in how things are done. Because you notice that one of the accusations is that the, the BOG did not uh, follow procedure. I mean, I'm not in the position to tell what, whether it had to go to the parliament to seek approval or not. Or, so, so I think those are the things that you know, the central bank should ensure, that you keep within the law. If there's a 5% cap, on uh, central bank lending to the government and it has to be, you know, for whatever reason, it becomes necessary to breach it. I think you just follow the necessary procedures. You had economist Dr. Patrick Isumi. Now let's move away to the agricultural sector because some players in the space are predicting that prices of food could escalate further if the government fails to prefer effective policies to stem the continuous surge of food inflation in the country. The month of July recorded a food inflation of 55.0% from the 54.2% recorded in June. In a city business news interview, had 
head of programs and advocacy for the Peasant Farmers Association of Ghana, Charles Nyaba, explained some of the factors contributing to the surge. Last year, allocation to the agriculture sector was 1.84%. Last two years, it was 0.56%. And with all that, there was subsidy on uh, fertilizer, there was subsidy on seeds. But even with the 1.94% allocation this year, there's nothing. Farmers have gotten absolutely nothing. The fertilizer subsidy has been taken out, seed subsidy has been taken out, and it is the reason why cost of production has gone so high. So once you have cost of production going high, several things happen. One, farmers might not be able to procure the right inputs to produce. Some farmers might produce without putting the right inputs. Some farmers will scale down their production and others will go out of production. Okay? So when that happens, the total food supply uh, will actually reduce. And then those who are able to produce more will also have to push the cost of production on the consumer. And that's what we are seeing. That was Head of Programs and Advocacy for the Peasant Farmers Association of Ghana, Charles Nyaba. Well, on his part, the Chief Executive Officer of the Chamber of Agribusiness, Anthony Morrison, is impressing on governments to address issues associated with post-harvest losses. And it's sad to know that more than 90% of the agricultural roads are, are motorable. It takes sometimes one week to drag a truckload of food from the farm gate to the main road. Post-harvest losses keep increasing as we speak. The last data we did for the Denmark Embassy, we have over $5 billion annually in post-harvest losses and over another $5 billion in terms of food waste. So our priorities must be aligned. Chief Executive Officer of the Chamber of Agribusiness, Anthony Morrison. Meanwhile, the General Secretary of the General Agricultural Workers Union of Ghana, Edward Karawe, has underscored the need for government to have a backup plan to avert any threat on the country's food security on the back of the political instability in neighboring Niger. Our food situation is going to get worse because onions, for instance, is part of the food stuff and it is important. And um, we also know that Niger also supplies for, for uh, meat products. If you look at cattle, the goats, and the sheep that we have here, our abattoirs and so on, some of them also come there. So it's also going to affect livestock. This kind of meat production or meat availability is going to be constrained. Edward Kariwe is a general secretary of the General Agricultural Workers Union of Ghana. Now, the Public Utility Regulatory Commission, PURC, is making a strong case for electricity consumers to pay for power consumed without relying on the government. According to the Commission, the introduction of new sources of power generation in Ghana, such as thermal and solar, in addition to hydropower, comes at a cost that must be paid for by cust customers or consumers. The Executive Secretary of the PURC, Dr. Ishmalaka, has been speaking at a PURC organized tariff education event in Takradi. So what we decided to implement in 1997 was to get a thermal generation that would depend on oil. But this has implications. Implication is that Akosombo uses water, is that not it? But even the water, we have to add technology. The water alone, we can't just go and fetch water and say, water, give me electricity. You have to add some technology. That technology is not free. 
You have to recruit people who manage that technology. You have to recruit people who do maintenance. All these are costs. Is that not it? Who should pay for? The government. Why? Well, the electricity, they are giving it to us. We have the electricity. Why should the government pay? So, so we have to pay. Is that not it? You hear the voice of Dr. Ishmael Aka. He's the executive secretary of the Public Utility Regulatory Commission. Finally, the Ministry of Trade and Industry says it is committed to enhance Ghana's trade relations with the United States to boost investment opportunities between the two countries. Speaking during the opening ceremony of the U.S.-Ghana Business Expo in Accra, Sector Minister Kobna Tahir Hammond shed light on the recent progress made in trade and economic development policies, solidifying the government's unwavering dedication to strengthening the private sector. To facilitate the exploitation of this investment potential from the United States, the government of Ghana, through its trade and economic development policies, has enhanced the support for the private sector. We, through the policies, would enhance the private sector, as I just indicated, by their sheer size, their contribution, and the engine of growth of our economy, both domestically and in terms of foreign earnings. And this is all to ensure increased production and export capacity enhancement, particularly in the manufacturing sector. In this context, a notable focus has been placed on opportunities for exporting to the United States markets in areas such as horticulture, textiles and garments products. Kobnata Hammond is Minister of Trade and Industry. Well, that's how we wrap up on today's edition of City Business News on Eyewitness News. It was powered by your most comprehensive business news website, citybusinessnews.com. My name is Akosia Autry. Up next is Point Blank. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Welcome back to Point Blank on Eyewitness News. Tonight on Point Blank, we bring you portions of a presentation made by the Speaker of Parliament, the Right Honorable Alban Sumana Kingsford Babin, at the 30th anniversary celebration of the Fourth Republican Parliament at the public forum held in Takradi in the Western region. Let's listen. But what has happened, and I could see it coming, because since 2000, we have not been having large majority in parliament again. 2000 was just, as you know, went for a runoff. And the numbers were very close. I was there when our colleagues came to join us in 1997, the Committee on Constitutional, Legal, and Parliamentary Affairs. Our current was the ranking to me at that committee level. So we worked together for four years and we know each other very, very well. 
So with these difficulties, we have done our best to negotiate our ways so far. And clearly, one of the weakest points of parliament has greatly improved. Before then, our law-making function has been adjudged as one of the best in Africa. We pass very good laws. And the first parliament of the Fourth Republic was given six months to pass key laws to establish all the constitutional commissions that we have today. Only six months we succeeded in doing so and established the democratic governance in the country. Since then, the Ghana's parliament has been adjudged as a very effective constitutional legislators. Again, we have, and this was started in the seventh parliament under the leadership of Professor Michael Kwe, navigated the constitutional provision in Article 108, which seemingly prevented members of parliament from initiating bills into parliament. They say you are a lawmaker, and they say you cannot initiate law. And so you have to wait for somebody else to do it. How will the people see the essence of the MP? If the concerns that you are raising about your region, your representatives in parliament cannot come together and look at the laws that are preventing the development of this region, initiate action for us to improve upon those laws for a quota or some percentage to be earmarked in the revenues that are generated from this region for the development of this region, how relevant would those MPs be to the region? And so the earlier understanding and interpretation that was given to Article 108, which as chairman of the Subsidiary Legislation Committee in 1994, objected to that it was incorrect because we are the lawmakers and we should have the right to initiate law, not to wait for the executive arm to do that before we take over. In any case, when they bring the draft legislation, we have to consult all the stakeholders again before we process it on the floor. And so, we have now brought in what is referred to as the private members' bills. And recently, you can all attest to very key legislation that we have passed. Outlawing those who come out to declare others as witches. We never see or hear of wizards, only witches. Which is in the mind of those saying it. If we had witches, I would have encouraged them. Because they have something magical that we can use to develop. Unfortunately, we don't have. But yet, people were being killed because of that. We have outlawed that now. We have also brought to an end the death penalty. These are all private members' bills. And we are looking at the intrusion 
of foreign values and norms in our culture and tradition by looking at this LGBTQRRSS something something. That is also private members' bill. The private members' bill doesn't mean that it's the MP that started it. No, it's mostly stakeholders, civil society, like what happened in the LGBT. It's our chiefs, the traditional rulers, the spiritual leaders, the civil society organizations, and other stakeholders that came together to say that this thing that is happening, if we don't legislate on it, hey, as I stated earlier on, it will be worse than COVID-19. And that is what is happening in those countries. They are only not sharing that with you. And so they brought it on. And as I'm pro-life, and I believe in the word of God, I took it up personally, and I'm fighting it to the hilt. At a conference of speakers in Cameroon recently, my colleague speakers of African parliaments said that they are waiting for the model law that Ghana is processing. They have started their own, but they saw Uganda has gone to the extreme. They don't want to follow that extreme. But they've listened to our discussions, and particularly the social media where some of my clips have been put in, and they think that we are doing a better job. They are waiting for us to pass it, and they will follow suit. Ladies and gentlemen, this is progress. And these are the, some of the dividends of multi-party democracy. Again, our oversight function of parliament, which hitherto was the worst performer, all the surveys said that Ghana's parliament was very weak in its oversight. And in fact, Nana, chairman, just emphasized some of them. This has slightly improved. More light is now being thrown in on the dark side of governance. And Ghana, as you know and you've been told, has been adjudged as having the most open parliament, not just in Sub-Saharan Africa, but in Africa. But all of us will admit that a lot still remains to be done. Our efforts to make Ghana a better place to live in has met a number of serious challenges, including the following. You've been told some, I'll just add this. <coughs> Ghana's parliament has grown from 200, 200 multi-party house to 230 and now 275 duopoly. So we say we want multi-party democracy. Now we are practicing a democracy of two parties. So when I went to parliament, there were a number of parties called Progressive Alliance with independent members. 
that was condemned as one party parliament even though there were a number of parties such as ncp they were called a bro or eagle today we have only two mpp and ndc in parliament that is what we refer to as a duopoly it's a challenge we have to look at there are more than two sides of a coin when you are told there are two sides of a coin you have been deceived there may be two major sides of a coin but the edge is also a side again women representation has increased marginally from 8%, 8% to 14.5%. Ghana remains among the lowest in Africa. Many parliaments in Africa have now passed 30% women representation in parliament. And the highest score in the whole world is in Africa, Rwandan parliament. 61% women representation. Ghana is 14.5. Yet we call ourselves a model democracy. What about youth representation? Youth representation is 5%. But we want to grow younger and better. How can 5% represent the 68% population of the youth in Ghana? This is food for thought. What about the fiscal challenge? The highest score we ever had was in the civil parliament, where it was 5.5%. Now it's zero. And you heard it here that elections to political office has now become public auctions and money has taken center stage violence have been introduced into our politics more than we began worst of it all the reflection or mirror or the representation of our culture and tradition has been hit hard with a constitutional provision against active participation of chiefs in politics. I don't understand what that meant. The Supreme Court have tried to explain it. Active participation. What is politics about? It's about development. What are chiefs and queens supposed to lead us to do? To develop and then you have prohibited them and say vote for others but don't think that you can be voted for and you call that rule of law selective justice we've been told here that the space of development cannot match up to population growth with a resultant high rate of unemployment and its attendant security risk and instability, which we are witnessing. There are so many others I could add. 
But let me tell you that because of this, the reversal of democratic gains in Burkina Faso. I used to visit the president of Burkina Faso and the parliament and speakers. I used to go there. And I was able to link a number of businessmen from Ghana to their partners in Burkina when I was deputy speaker. Look at what is happening there. Almost about 70% is being controlled by terrorists. So they run the schools, they run the health sector, they, they, they do everything there. No government is there. Mali, Guinea, and Niger recently. <clears throat> These are not palatable narrative for the profile of our sub-region. It will well be because to the citizens, democracy has not lived up to its billing as anticipated by the electorate. What is obvious to all this is the erosion of trust and confidence in the political class. Sometimes I myself know I'm harsh when I'm presiding and then shouting on members. But I'm very worried about this loss of trust that we are not portraying ourselves as serious people, people to be taken seriously, that the destiny of the people is in our hands, and then we are seen joking on the floor of parliament. It's just that I'm not a headmaster. I would have been carrying a cane. This is indeed the case for many democracies across the world. I had the occasion to say recently, that there is a huge dissonance between our words as politicians and our actions. In particular, our assurances are not supported by any empirical data. One village, one dam. If you ask the person how many villages we have in Ghana, no knowledge. Ask the person the cost of a dam, no knowledge. Yet, it's a promise. This has made political conduct highly transactional. So that was Speaker of Parliament, the Honorable Alban Babin, speaking at the 30th anniversary celebration of the Fourth Republican Parliament at a public forum held in Takra in the Western Region. That's how we conclude our show for tonight. Show has been produced by Nana Kovna Welsing, Beverly London, and Sami Weafi. Technical assistance given by Daniel Squashi. Social media by Daniel Abugri and Noriga. Earlier you heard Akosiotri. My name is Selom Adun. Have a good evening. City News. We speak first. Reach our hotline on 0302-224959 and get interactive on Facebook, City 97.3 FM and on Twitter at City 973. City 97.3 Accra